Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So last week, we started going through the book of Luke. We're only gonna get through the first two chapters through December, we'll pick it back up in chapter three when we get into January, but for Advent, for the month of December, for Christmas, we're gonna just stay in these two chapters. So I didn't finish Luke one, excuse me, last week, we only got up to verse 38. So that's where we're gonna pick up last week, but I wanna just briefly cover and remind us what we learned last week, because the thing, the, the theme that keeps coming up are these Um, attributes of Advent, these themes that Luke is weaving into the early parts of his book that are gonna carry on all the way through the rest of the book. Now last week what we talked about is the unexpected nature of Advent. The idea that during the first Advent there was a priest who didn't have faith when an angel was literally standing in front of him saying your prayers have been answered and a little girl with no formal training to be able to function inside the temple when she sees the exact same angel and hears a similar message, her response is, man, use me, please. Be to me according to your word. The unexpected nature in the first advent that the people you thought should have got it didn't and the people that you would have looked over, they were the ones who captured it, who saw it, who understood it. And how as we anticipate the second advent, so advent's a Latin word that means arrival, and what it is is it's a time for us to consider the arrival of Jesus. He came first as a child in a manger and he's coming again as a reigning king who's gonna split the sky and freak everybody out. When he shows up, you're either gonna be ready or you're gonna be regretting. So the word advent is a word we use to describe what happened the first time he arrived and we're also waiting on the second advent. So what we're doing is we're considering what we can learn from the first advent to apply it to the second. And this unexpected nature of the first advent also applies to the second because all throughout scripture we're told that many people are going to be caught unaware that as you get closer to the return of Jesus, there's gonna be this great falling away. People that you thought were committed to the Lord, that attended church every week, are going to be revealed as nothing more than religious, and they're gonna walk away from God. And those that are the faithful remnant are going to have full lamps. That's the unexpected nature of Advent. The big giant churches that you thought would make it are not going to make it. Prophecy has told us, we have been warned over and over in the New Testament that coming right before the second arrival of Jesus, there's gonna be mass deception and a lot of it's gonna be in the church. But not everyone's gonna fall for it. There's gonna be a faithful remnant. There's going to be a people like Mary who are hungry, their hearts are prepared, they're anticipating with excitement the arrival of Jesus, and if we're gonna look at a parable, they're like the virgins who had full lamps, not the ones who didn't pack enough and had to go find some when, when Jesus started arriving, but the ones who are constantly keeping the fire of their hearts burning day and night. There's enough fuel because they're fueling it with the word of God. That was the unexpected nature of Advent that we talked about last week. Now, as we get into this week, we're gonna continue our story picking up uh, in Luke chapter one, verse 39. And the story is gonna keep a focus on these two characters, Zechariah and Mary. Uh, we're gonna, Elizabeth's gonna play a little bit part two, but both of these two are the main characters as we continue the story. But the interesting thing about Zechariah, and this is where we're gonna hone in by the end of the message, is the way that Zechariah responds towards the end. How he responds when it counts is very different than how he responded at the, at the very beginning of when the angel visited him. And so we're gonna track the trajectory of his transformation and look at that theme for Advent. That Advent is marked by unexpectancy, but it's also marked by profound transformation. All right, 
So let's get into that. Let's go to Luke chapter one. We're gonna start in verse 39. <clears throat> it says, in those days, those days are the days right after Mary was just visited uh, by the angel. In those days, arose, uh, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now, I love this interaction because it's an interaction between Mary and Elizabeth, but Luke underscores the story with a different interaction. This isn't so much the meeting of the moms as much as it's the meeting of the children, right? But before we get into that, I wanna show you a map of the path that Mary probably traveled. So we're gonna start by looking at uh, just a globe for context. We're gonna zoom in here on this area. And what you're gonna see is the path that Mary took from Nazareth down from Jerusalem into uh, where Zechariah probably lived, which is a town called Enkarim. So these places are referenced and I wanted them on the map so you could understand because this is the first century geography of Israel. And it looks very different than the, uh, the, the th a thousand years before uh, Jesus was born during the Davidic dynasty. You saw some maps of that and how it was broken up with different tribes. Well, this is after the exile. This is after they returned. This is under the influence of Rome. And Rome has kind of come in and restructured the whole region. You've got Galilee, which is kind of a region considered in the north. Samaria is the middle region of Israel. And Judea, or that's Judah, um, also that's kind of the region of uh, Jerusalem. That's all the south. So like from Dead Sea, the top of the Dead Sea, which is this right here, this is the Dead Sea, this is the Sea of Galilee. From here down, this is all Judea. The middle is Samaria and up north is Galilee. And I'm showing you this because I want you to get a context for what this pregnant girl did and the path that she traveled. This is roughly 75 to 90 miles. Pregnant. Right, so, so if you just start thinking about how hard it is to just get up and go on a walk around the neighborhood every afternoon. Just think about Mary. I want you to sink this, like, this isn't like public transit. She didn't call an Uber, okay? She walked or she was on a caravan, so she may have ridden a donkey. There's a good chance she probably wasn't traveling alone. She was probably traveling in a small group of people. But I want you to look at that track. And I want you to consider what the news that she heard did inside of her and what that elicited on the outside. When people of faith on the first advent are confronted with huge news, it results in huge changes. Mary didn't get the news and just piddle around Nazareth like, well, isn't this nice? No, she understood the magnitude of what this was because every little Jewish girl all the way back to the time of Abraham was wondering if the promise that came from Abraham is gonna come through their family line. There's this coming Messiah. There's a promise to David through his kingly lineage. There's gonna come this Messiah. It's gonna come through the, through, through the people of Israel, which means there's not just gonna be this man who just beams out of outer space or walks out on planet Earth at 30 years old saying, hey, follow me. He's gonna come through the line of God's people. He's gonna be born of a woman and he's gonna be a child, but he's gonna grow up and he's gonna be a king. And every little girl, as they grew up, they had this in the back of, the in the back of their mind. God might just choose me. And when the news shows up and when Gabriel says, you, Mary, have been chosen, it is going to be you, 
Mary's response is massive. She travels 90 miles down to her closest relative to share the news with her. And the picture of what happens in this home is unbelievable. Now, if we read it too quick, we just kind of, it seems like Elizabeth is saying some things, you know, making some proclamations. Mary, you're blessed for believing. Elizabeth is saying, I also believe. She calls the child in Mary's stomach her Lord, so she understands what's going on. And the unborn child, John, believes and rejoices. But if we read it too fast, we miss what's actually happening here. I want you to picture this scene um, you guys remember, they don't have it so much more because there's not really malls anymore, but when I was a kid, I remember there was a Hallmark store. You guys remember Hallmark stores? And man, at Christmas time, Hallmark stores, they were the place to be. You'd go in, there was like a whole little city, and there were Hallmark cards, right? Walmart had like the knockoff cards, but if you wanted like a real card to let people know you really love them, you got a Hallmark card. And you went, and on these Hallmark cards, there was these little pictures, and it was this, it was, it captured a little scene of like Christmas or something. But I just remember as a kid, like looking at these cards and just thinking, it's the same way, kind of like Norman Rockwell photos, there's this, there's this way of capturing a scene, and you just, I remember I remember as a kid just kind of looking at it and beholding it, it's like, man, there's just something really magical about that. Um, the Hallmark Channel's doing it now with movies, maybe you like watching Hallmark movies. It, it's this sense that during this season, you're gonna try and capture an atmosphere and represent it in such a way that it just kind of captures your attention. To me, that's what's happening here. On the first advent in this home, you've got a picture of Mary who has received tremendous news about what's gonna happen, and she shows up to Elizabeth's house, and Elizabeth responds in kind. Yes, you should be this excited about this. In fact, not only are you gonna be excited about this, I'm gonna be excited about this. And not only am I gonna be excited about this, but this little baby in my stomach, the moment you walked in, he's excited about it. He's taking laps. He's flipping, he's excited. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. Now why is that important? Because this little picture of the first advent is a way for us to prepare for the second advent. If this is what God's people looked like on the eve of Jesus coming the first time, then what should God's people look like on the eve of him coming the second time? It should, be, it should look like, the little Hallmark, Hallmark card, it should look like a church filled with people running to the place of God and not finding a bunch of complainers and uh, a bunch of attitude, you're in my seat, I don't like that song, can, we, can you hurry it up, you preach for so long, not filled with a bunch of people who are, are filled with uh, attitudes and they're bah humbug and, and they got their heads in the cloud, they're just, they're doom and gloom, did you, did you watch the news lately? No, the, the church on the eve of Advent should look like a place like Zechariah and Elizabeth's house. A place that has been so profoundly changed by the news of God that when people come in to share more good news, guess what God did in my life this week? It is not, well, maybe it wasn't God. Maybe it was a coincidence. It's not a place where people are just throwing wet blankets on everything. It's a place where you find the kind of encouragement that you expect to find in God's family. When you show up and you say, man, guess, look at what God did. Let me tell you just for a second what God has been doing in my life. You aren't met with a, well, that's nice. I wish you'd do something in my life. No, you are met with the level of excitement that you bring to the table because we as a people have all agreed that on the eve of him returning again, we should all be filled with excitement and all be filled with joy and all be filled with expectation. This is the picture that we're seeing, an atmosphere proclaiming goodness and joy, not spreading lies or trying to mirror and look like the world not trying to reproduce our services on Sunday so that they look like something that would appeal to non-believers because you can't really tell, is, that, is it a church or is it not a church? Is that a pastor? Is it, is it just a good speaker? Is that a worship team or is it, is it a band? The difference should be profound in the same way that the difference should, is profound in the first advent. 
And I'm asking this because I want this living room scene to not just foreshadow the church, the big church, the worldwide church. I want this scene to capture your attention so that it mirrors our church. I want you to look at this and I want you to seriously ask yourself, is this what my home looks like? Is this what my church looks like? When good news comes out in my home from the mouth of one of my children, am I the first one to, to just give them a dose of reality? When, when God starts moving in their lives, do I get jealous? I, w- I wish God would move in my life. Or, 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 or parents, when you see God really trying to get a hold of your kid and start doing something really profound in their life and you feel like, well, let's temper it. Okay, let's not, let's not just be all fervor. Like, that's not gonna serve you well. Just because you're old and you've lost your fervor? Because you're old and you don't remember what it was like to have a fire in your belly anymore? Or you have such a fire in your belly and, you, and you, your kids, they don't want anything to do with the Lord, but one little thing happens and you're just like, oh yeah, that was good. Why don't you try more of that? Just the constant beating over the head. Why don't you love God? Why don't you go to church? And we're like, well, I, don't, I don't know why they don't love it. I keep telling them how much they're supposed to love it. And we treat God or church like it's vegetables. It's good for you. Just do it until you like it. There's not, there's our knees, our knees aren't, aren't, aren't wore out because we're praying for our kids. We think that transformation is going to take place because we're just going to talk our kids into the kingdom. I'm, I'm covering all of it, all the whole spectrum. I don't care where you are today. This is a picture given to us by Luke, by the power of the Holy Spirit for us to consider. Is this what my house looks like? Because if it doesn't, what do I do about that? And if this, is this a picture of my church? And if it's not, then what do I do about it? That's important because it's so easy as Christians to get into the habit of saying, well, that's not what my church looks like. So it must be someone else's problem. I wish the leaders would fix it. I wish the pastor would do something about it. When are we going to get to a place where the first question we ask is, what do I do about it? I'm looking around, there's not a whole lot of this going on, or there's not a whole lot of that going on. Is it possible that the Holy Spirit is asking you to start that thing, to do that thing, to not wait until the church as a formal organization says, all right, we're gonna, we're gonna put together this thing and we're gonna throw some money in it and we're gonna, it's gonna be every Thursday from nine to 11 and maybe it doesn't need to be formalized, maybe you just need to say yes and start doing it. This is a picture of something really amazing on the eve of the first advent, and my desire is that this will be the picture of our church on the second advent, a place filled with joy. Now, before I want to continue, before I continue, I have to say this one thing, because I can't, in the world that we live in today, I can't miss opportunities in Scripture to touch on very specific issues. I'm not really one to do themed messages or, you know, it's 4th of July, so we're going to do a 4th of July message. I could care less about all that. But I, I, I really don't even care what politicians are talking about, but there are moments in Scripture where as we're reading through, I feel like things are talked about that need to be talked about, okay? And I think you know where I'm going with this. When you look at this picture, I want you to behold John. John is in his mother's stomach. She has not been born yet. Excuse me, he has not been born yet. He is still on the inside of his mother's stomach. Jesus is still inside Mary's stomach. And what do we see them doing? The unborn child, John, is leaping for joy because he knows Jesus is in the room. This is a meeting of Jesus and John before they are born, and they are seen responding to one another. In this moment, John is affirming his purpose, his position, and his relationship to that Lord in Mary's body. And it's all before the baby is born. So what does that mean? It means that the world we live in today the apostle John would describe as Babylon. See, throughout this entire story, all the way back in Genesis, 
There was a group of people who got together and said, let's build a tower and make a name for ourselves. We'll build it so high that we'll be greater than gods. We'll get up there where they are. The tower was called Babel. God destroyed it, but that spirit never left the earth. It kept resurfacing all throughout the story. It pops up again in a nation called Babylon. And that same spirit after Babylon is overthrown and destroyed in the New Testament in the book of Revelation, that same spirit pops its head up again in Rome. And we're told by the end of the age, on the eve of Christ's advent, before he returns a second time, Babylon won't be a place. It'll be earth. Hear me. Babylon's not a city you can go to because it's every city you go to. Babylon is everywhere. I say that because in this specific text, Babylon, the place we're growing up in right now, has been very strategic in trying to form the minds of the people who live in Babylon that unborn children aren't humans. They have no value, they have no rights. You can do whatever you want to them. If you get pregnant, you can make a decision to abort that child, kill that child, so that your life isn't inconvenienced. Scripture is teaching a very different message than the message that Babylon is proclaiming. These children are creations from God. The moment they are conceived. And they have the awareness enough to be able to respond to the spirit of God and stimulus in the room to know something as simple as John's position in relation to the Lord before Jesus is even born. And you have to ask yourself, at what point will I decide to submit myself to what Babylon says or what the word of God says? This is always the choice for those who follow Jesus. There is the way of the dragon and there is the way of the lamb. There is no middle ground and you have to make a decision where you stand. And there will, be, there will be politicians who try to make it confusing to you so you can stand wherever you like. And I'm telling you that the word of God is much clearer than that. And it is up to God's people to start standing up for God's created world and the people that he forms and fashions in mother's bellies. Because if we don't stand for them, then nobody will. Listen. I am convinced that if you want to protect children, Christians need to start it. Christians, those who understand the created order of God making this universe and the created order of giving a savior to the earth in the form of a baby under the charge of a mother and a father to, raise, to be raised up in, in, in the right way and, and then to assume the responsibility of being the savior and then teaching the 12 disciples, that entire structure has been given to us to steward. Okay, it was not given to the education system. It was not given to Hollywood to steward. It's not given to governments, to Babylon to steward. We have responsibilities under God's kingdom to steward the truths that he has given us. And I argue that this is chief among them. You hear me? This is important. And I'm touching on this because the text is touching on this. Any other view that you have that is not a child, is a human at conception, is Babylon. It comes from the dragon and not the creator. Amen? Okay. Some of you already stopped listening, so we'll just, no, all of us, all of you are continuing to listen. Amen? Because truth is true. And I, sometimes you have to say it. 
And sometimes, and I'm not done with it, I'll step on the rest of your toes by the end. Sometimes when you, when you get to the place at the end of this message, when you're confronted with something, you're like, okay, I'm comfortable being confronted with that, but I'm not comfortable with being confronted with that. That's another thing that you need to bring before the cross. Because look, all of it gets nailed. All of it gets put to death. Not, only the, not just the things that you're comfortable letting him tap dance on, but all of it. He wants all of your life. He wants all of your attention, all of your money, all of your affections, everything you look at. He wants all the space in your mind, all the affections of your heart. He does not want to play with some of your affections going to him and the rest of them going to the gods of this world. He will not have it. He is a jealous God. Now let's keep going. 46. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped the servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and then returned to her home. So upon Elizabeth proclaiming what she has in this child, Mary responds with a song of praise. This song is often referred to as the Magnificat. If you go to a high church during Christmas, you'll probably hear a beautiful orchestra sing and play this song. But the song has very specific themes in it. Here's the themes in order. Mary is proclaiming that God looks on the humble and resists the proud. But God doesn't just look on the humble and resist the proud, God actually elevates the humble and humiliates the proud. Another theme is that God satisfies the hungry with good, with good things and dismisses the greedy. That God remembers his covenants and he always fulfills them in his own time. Now. If you're looking at this song and you're thinking to yourself, this sounds familiar, that's because you're right. This song, the themes, the order of the themes, are almost exactly taken from 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10, when a young girl named Hannah cried out to God because her womb was barren and she wanted a child. And God gave this young woman a little boy named Samuel and she brought him to the temple to be dedicated and she sang this song. And in her song and in Mary's song, the themes are almost identical. Both songs exalt God, they rejoice in salvation, they declare the holiness of God, they speak of the humility and pride, they speak of the poor and the rich, they speak of the hungry and the full, they speak of God's faithfulness. Both stories separated by almost a thousand years. Now why is that important for us today? Because on the eve of the first advent, people knew their Bible. How did Mary know to sing that song? Because Mary grew up reading Hannah's song. She knew it. Now why is that important to us? Because if on the eve of the first advent, people knew their Bible, on the eve of the second advent, the church needs to know the Bible. We need to stop talking about all these other things and avoiding scripture. Let's be honest for a minute. You don't have to raise hands, but how many times have you ever read the entire Bible? And I don't, I don't mean, well, if I think about it, I think I've pretty much covered it all. That's not what I mean. I mean you've read the whole book. 
I want you to feel convicted. If the response is, I haven't, I want you to feel that conviction because it's God's word. And if we have spent any period of our Christian life walking, assuming, well, I'll catch it, I'll hear it, I'll learn it, but I won't read it, I won't give myself to it, then what's gonna happen is when the world starts squeezing, what comes out won't be scripture. But when God starts working in Mary's life, and when the world starts squeezing the people of God in the early church, what comes out? Scripture. Oh, they know it. They know it so well. It is the thing that helps them interpret and understand the world around them. The early church did not function like the church today. They did not view it as an obligation where they have to go and do this thing and listen to this thing and sing these things and then they go home to do their own thing. And the whole time they're here, they're thinking about that other thing they'd rather be doing. In the early church, these people, their entire lives were saturated in this. This isn't to say that they didn't do other things. They did fish, they did make dinner for their family, they did sit on the ground and play games with their kids, they did go out and tend to the livestock. They had normal lives, but every aspect of that life was saturated with this word. The songs they sang, they weren't pop songs on the radio, they were songs that the patriarchs sang and they learned and sang while they were out shepherding the sheep. The level of saturation of God's word in the early church needs to be the hallmark of the saturation of God's word in the church before the second advent. There is a responsibility on us to become more familiar familiar with the story than we currently are to start taking this word seriously, to read it, to dissect it, to understand it, to ask questions about it, to share it with others, to respond in praise and in joy, and to let this start framing everything we see and everything we do and everything we think. And what I mean by that is moving from the place where you live off of what you think it says and you start living off of what do you know it says because you read it this morning. Do you see the difference? As Christians, it is so easy to hear a sermon that was really profound in your life and made a big difference to you, and then 10 years from now, you have never gone back and reread that scripture or the chapter in which it's found to understand the context of what the writer was actually trying to say because there was one truth that meant so much to you and it just pierced you and you've kind of carried it along the way. There's nothing wrong with that. What I'm saying is there is a step beyond that so that God's people are not all wandering around with these little nuggets in their pockets saying, oh man, I got a couple little truths here. No, no, I know the big, all right, so uh, let me think a big illustration here. You, got, you, have you guys ever been to Costco and see the big giant wedge of cheese? You know what I'm talking about? maybe not at Costco, you just seen the big old giant wedges of cheese covered in wax. There's a difference between walking around with a couple crumbs from that thing and owning that entire thing and it sits on your living room at home. You see the difference? What I'm arguing for is a steady diet of this word and not snacks. Okay? Because what we've been doing is putting together these little snack packs for everybody so you can go home and you've got a little section with a little cracker and a little red plastic stick and you can spread the cheese on it. And we're acting like, and I say we, leadership in the church globally, we're acting like that's gonna sustain you, that it's all you need. What I want is to teach you how to cook for yourself. I'm not interested in giving you little snack packs and little, uh, here's a little nugget. If you catch that and it pierces you, great. But if you don't know how to sit down and make a meal by getting into the word and, and allowing it to just penetrate you and marinate and saturate, you're in for a tough time the closer we get to this advent. But that's the beauty of this season. You can change. But let's go to verse 57.
Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son and her neighbors and relatives all heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother said, no, he will be called John. And they said to her, well, honey, none of your relatives is called by this name. And so they started making signs to his father, Zechariah, who couldn't speak because he responded to the angel with unbelief, inquiring what he wanted the child to be called. And so he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And at that moment, immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all the neighbors and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. This section is good because it reveals an important aspect of Advent, the one I've been touching on, complete transformation. Because at this point, the last time we saw Zechariah, he was filled with unbelief and robbed of his voice. Nine months later, we see a very different Zechariah. And I love the conversation that's going on about the child's name because essentially what's embedded in here is you've got relatives and neighbors who are trying to remind Zechariah and Elizabeth what the culture says. It is cultural, it is normal according to our society to name your child after dad or grandpa. Why are you breaking tradition? And Zechariah grabs this tablet and writes his name is John. It's Zechariah's way of saying, of saying I stand with God and not culture. I'm not here to do the thing everyone expects me to do. I am here to do one thing and one thing only, and that is what God has told me to do. Now this is fascinating, because what we're watching is a completely different Zechariah. And the question we have to ask is what what, what brought about this change? Why is this guy so different than the last time we saw him? Well, the text doesn't say, but I think we can imply that it probably had something to do with not speaking for nine months. You can learn a lot if you just stop speaking so much. If you spent more time listening and less time talking, you might be seeing the kind of things that Zachariah saw. But not only that, not only was the, there was a profound change because he was robbed of his voice, but there was this profound change because he's literally walking through a trial. He's confronted with something that God speaks to him through the angel and his first response is, I don't believe. And there's repercussions for that. There's trials associated with that. And you can learn a lot by not speaking through your trials. But here's the other side of it. Sometimes you don't realize what you're learning in the middle of the trial. It's only until the trial is over that you reflect and you understand what God was showing you. But in any case, if you're learning in the middle or if you're learning at the end, the lesson is quit talking so much. Close your mouth and open your ears. Let's finish the story with 67. Because Zechariah is going to do something very similar to Mary. He is going to start praising. And we're told that this isn't necessarily a song as much as it's a prophecy. And prophecy is us speaking out what God brings to mind. So these words from Zechariah are God's words. And this is what's so fascinating about the situation. Zechariah learned to trust the Lord because he let God take his voice and God gave Zechariah God's voice. He replaced what was in his mouth with his own words, with God's words. Let's go to 67. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, 
David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, just I want you to picture Zechariah looking at this young John. It says, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to all of those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So Zechariah's words are very different than the original words we saw when he was in the holy place being confronted by the angel. And the question we have to ask is, what did Zechariah learn during this time? Clearly he learned something. What did he learn? He learned about the unexpected and transformative way that God works. See, in this story with Zechariah, God takes a religious, ritualistic, unbelieving man and changes his life. Takes a normal, average, everyday, boring churchgoer and sets him on fire. God takes Zechariah's voice and replaces it with God's voice. He takes Zechariah's unbelief and replaces it with these bold declarations about what his son is going to do. He went from how can this be to this child will be God's holy prophet. And frankly, this right here to me is what Advent is all about. Because in this first Advent, what you see is a man completely changed a transformed and changed man. And this is the desire that I have on the eve of the second advent. Because just like God changed the man during the first advent, God is still in the business of changing men today. Now listen, I'm speaking directly to the men in this place for a reason. But ladies, you're not off the hook. This is all God's people, but specifically the men. Because if you look at the trajectory of church over the last 50 to 100 years, it is made up, and I'm painting with a broad brush, but it is made up predominantly of wives dragging their husbands to church. It is not made up predominantly of men leading their families to church. That is why I'm speaking to the men specifically. Because we're in the middle of the epidemic, it hasn't ended yet. And some of you in here today, you might be part of that. You're here because your wife dragged you here. Or you're here, maybe you don't have a wife. You're here because you think you should be here. You're not here because there's a fire in your gut and you want more of God than anything else in this world. You still have an appetite for some of the things of this world. There are things that still capture your attention. And those are the things that occupy most of your mind. And this story is profound. Because this story is asking right now, priests of the home, do you want your life to be changed? Do you want a changed life? Are you tired of the normal church route? Are you tired of going to church and watching everyone else seem to have been profoundly impacted by something that's going over your head? Are you at a place where you're just kind of sick of the whole religious cycle, but you don't know how to get out of it because you've just been in it for so long? This is the beauty of this message. 
because we're looking at a guy who is leading a, in a priesthood role and he's leading his family and God says to this man, will you trade your ways for my ways? And today the Holy Spirit is asking the same question in here today, will you trade your ways for my ways? See, this story back at the beginning of Luke 1 started in a very dark time for Israel. There's unbelief and religion everywhere you look. But then we meet this one guy who's caught up in the middle of the unbelief and the sorrow and the darkness. And we find out that this guy has prayed a prayer. And based off of this one prayer that this one man prays, God sets in motion an entire plan to redeem mankind. I'm gonna answer your prayer, Zechariah, but not in the way that you thought. You want a child, I'm gonna give you a child, but not just any child. I'm gonna give you a child who's going to prepare God's people for the arrival of Jesus. Your son is not just gonna be any boy. He's going to show up and he is going to profoundly impact the entire landscape. He's gonna look like an Old Testament prophet. He's gonna be baptizing people out in the backwoods somewhere to prepare the hearts of the people for the message that Jesus is gonna be uh, proclaiming. And, and without your son's ministry, the people's hearts won't be proclaimed. Without that act of baptism, without them going down in the water, they're not gonna have the, the mental awareness to be able to understand what Jesus is even saying. They've gotta get their hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit to a place where they are a, a, uh, ready to receive this message. The ministry of John is like a plow that is just plowing through Israel, turning up soil that has been compacted for years. It's so hard it won't grow anything. And the, the, the most fascinating thing about this, the most amazing thing about all this transformation that we see from Zechariah, it all starts from one place, prayer. So here's the deal. I asked you a minute ago, are you tired of the way things are? You're tired of all the darkness and sorrow? You're tired of being a man in his 50s and 60s and, and regretting most of his life? You're tired of being a young man, feeling like you have no direction, you don't know where you're going, you don't know what path, you, you, you're tired of all of that? You're tired of feeling like a young woman and you're just like, man, I'm just ready to get married and I'm just looking for a guy who looks like he moderately has his stuff together. Like I will accept like, I'll, I'll take a three or a four, just because there's so many zeros. Are you, are you a wife or are you a single mom? Are you a wife with a husband who doesn't cherish Christ, who doesn't love the Lord? Are you tired of the way things are going? Are you tired of stale Bible studies and shallow expressions of your faith? Man, I have got such good news for you. All of that can change today. And you say, how? How does all of that change? It changes with one word, prayer. This entire story was set in motion because of prayer. And the enemy has lied to us that prayer is just ritualistic. That maybe God will hear, maybe he won't. And he's robbed us of one of the most powerful things Christ has given us. It's access to the king sitting on the throne. We can talk directly to our king. So here's the thing. Are you tired of all the routine? then pray with all of your heart that your life will be invaded by the power of the Holy Spirit and he will change your life. Ask for it and watch what he does. Pray that God will bring joy to your work and ignite your faith. Has work robbed you of your joy? Most of you are like, yep, 100%. What do we do? We have no defense. Oh, yes, you do. You pray against that. You pray against the enemy using work to rob you of your joy. 
What do you pray for? You pray that God will bless his church and he will pour out his blessings every time they gather together. That the scene of the Sunday morning worship service looks more like Elizabeth's house. You pray that God will end sorrow and unbelief in your life. You pray that that God will remove your voice and replace it with his voice. I sit back and I... I look at this man, Zechariah, and I look at the way that his life was profoundly transformed, and I look across this congregation today, and I look at some of the lives of the people in this room, and I want so desperately for you to experience the kind of change that Zechariah experienced. But I can't want this for you more than you want it for you. I can't plead you into this. I can't convince you into this. I can't beg you into this. I I can at best lead you to the water, can't make you drink. I can want this for you, but it's not gonna take root until you want it for you. And so if we're looking at profound transformation on the first advent, and I want to see profound transformation on the second advent, what's the next step? The next step sits in your lap. It jumps on your shoulders. It's that gripping of your heart, that piercing that you feel, the butterflies in your stomach, that, that rolling around, the marbles rolling around your head, like I just can't get the, it, it's something's pounding. God is speaking to me. Here's how you respond, prayer. Church, it is simple. You ask God to change your life. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.